Welcome to the Pearl of Great Price podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's the 9th of June. And on this day in Christian history, we go back to the year 1895 and travel to France, where the teenager Marie-Francois Therese Martin would make an act of oblation. Kneeling in her cell with her sister Celine, she read, In the evening of this life, I shall appear before you with empty hands. For I do not ask you, Lord, to count my works. According to a biographer, this gave her great joy, which reminded her of how she felt when listening to a Franciscan preacher who had assured her that her faults did not cause God sorrow. She continued, If through weakness I should chance to fall, may a glance from your eyes straight away cleanse my soul and consume all my imperfections, as fire transforms all things into itself. After her untimely death, she would become known internationally as Therese of Lisieux. And even though she'd lived a cloistered life and was outwardly unremarkable, struggling with fragile health, dying at the age of 24, she was a mystical powerhouse and posthumously recognised for her exemplary spiritual accomplishments. She was named a Doctor of the Universal Church by Pope John Paul II in 1997 a rare accolade even among saints. Only 36 have been given the title doctor in the 2,000-year history of the church, and of among them, only four women. Of the four female doctors, St Hildegard of Bingen, St Catherine of Siena, St Teresa of Avila, St Therese of Lisieux is the youngest. In her autobiography, The Story of a Soul, has been translated into 35 languages and sold millions of copies. Born Therese Martin into a wealthy and devout family of nine children, her early years were traumatic. Sadly, four children were to die in infancy and her mother died when she was barely four and a half years old. All of this was very distressing losing her mother was a severe blow and later she would consider that the first part of my life stopped that day. Anxious and troubled, something transformative seems to have happened to her at the age of 13 on Christmas Eve, which she called her complete conversion. It seemed to be an experience of the child Jesus and it was a turning point of her life and she became determined to become a Carmelite nun. The Carmelites live a life of prayer and contemplation and have a very rich tradition within the church of producing mystical classics and saints. Dating back to the 12th century, they wanted to emulate the first Christian hermits on Mount Carmel at the site that is claimed to have been the location of Elijah's cave in northern Israel. The story of how Elijah heard God in the small, still breeze whilst hiding in the cave is a spiritual classic of the Old Testament. 
and very important for the contemplative life. The Carmelites were founded by an Englishman, St. Simon Stock, and their original rule was given by the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. Though there is no documentary evidence to support it, Carmelite tradition suggests that a community of Jewish hermits had lived at the site from the time of Elijah until the Carmelites were founded, and Jews and Christians had lived praiseworthy lives in holy penitence in an uninterrupted succession. This has proven impossible to historically substantiate. However, during the Crusades, the monastery often changed hands, frequently being converted into a mosque. And in 1799, the building was finally converted into a hospital by Napoleon. And in 1821, the surviving structure was destroyed by the Pasha of Damascus. However, the Carmelite order grew to be one of the major Catholic religious orders worldwide. And the scapula of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, first given to St. Simon's Stock, is a devotion that has spread into the whole church, practiced by many, famously most recently by Pope John Paul II, who refused to remove it when the doctors were operating on him to save his life after an assassination attempt. See the pod of May the 13th. The Carmelites' philosophy, or charism, was that the quality of prayer determined the quality of community life, and therefore the quality of service which was offered to others. And when the Carmelites were forced to leave Mount Carmel, they changed their practice from being hermits to friars. In simple terms, this meant they didn't wait for people to come to them for help and counsel, but they went out to them. And this was mirrored in the church by the rise of mendicant orders who adopted a lifestyle of poverty, travelling and living in urban areas for the purposes of preaching, evangelization, and ministry, especially to the poor, moving away from the previously established monastic model. The stable, isolated community was changed to a poor, often itinerant lifestyle. Inevitably, as the Carmelites spread around the world, were successful and attracted more vocations, they became wealthier and their lifestyle became more lax, moving further away from their original rule. Attempts to reform the order from within would happen from time to time with varying degrees of success. However, it was Spain in the 16th century, the Siglo de Oro, the golden century, the zenith of the Spanish Empire, a flourishing of culture and mystics, that two incredible figures, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, managed a lasting and partial reform of the Carmelites, forming the discalced branches, meaning without shoes, as a sign of their embrace of poverty. The young Tres Martin was determined to enter a discalced community, but was seen as being too young and gently told to wait by bishops and other superiors. Very determined. She was on a diocesan pilgrimage to Rome for the priestly jubilee of Pope Leo XIII. 
On the 20th of November 1887, during a general audience with the Pope, Therese, in her return, approached the Pope, knelt and asked him to allow her to enter the Carmel at the age of 15. The Pope benignly said, Well, my child, do what the superiors decide, and you will enter if it is God's will. And he blessed Therese. However, she refused to leave his feet, and the Swiss guard had to carry her out of the room. And finally, at the early age of 15, she became a nun, and she joined two of her older sisters in the cloistered Carmelite community of Lisieux. She entered the Carmel of Lisieux with the determination to become a saint. But after six years as a Carmelite, she realised how small and insignificant she felt, and very far off from the unfailing love that she would wish to practice. She is said to have understood that then that it was from this insignificance that she had to learn to ask for God's help. Her famous little way. In spite of her hidden life and Therese's express wish to remain unknown, when a Carmelite nun dies, her sisters usually write a short biography of her for other Carmels briefly recounting her childhood, her desire to enter the Carmel and her entrance, the different stages of her religious life, the services rendered to the community and finally her illness and her death. In this milieu, they call this document a circular because it circulates amongst the Carmels and everyone receives their own copy. Therese's sister Pauline had been elected the prioress of the Carmel, and she gave Therese the work of guiding novices. As it became clear that her death was approaching, Pauline was concerned with the drafting of her circular, so she redeployed her to write an account of her soul. Therese ceased any activity and only wrote her little assignment, and wrote with great difficulty in a black notebook. All this together made 12 chapters. And she envisaged the book to have a title, A Love Song. Others suggested The Passage of an Angel. It was eventually called, unpresumptuously, simply The Story of a Soul. And it's essentially a collection of her autobiographical manuscripts, printed and distributed a year after her death to initially that very limited audience. However, the impact was significant. And in 1902, Polish Carmelite father Rafael Kalanowicki translated her autobiography into Polish. 34 other languages it was translated into and the book quickly spread around the world. And as early as 1912, Father Thomas Taylor a teacher at the Diocese of Glasgow Seminary, wrote a, wrote a short hagiography on Therese. Taylor went on to become a significant proponent of devotion to the little flower in Scotland. And as pastor of St Francis Xavier Church in Carfin, Lanarkshire, he built a replica of the Grotto of Lourdes, a 
and included a small shrine honouring St. Therese with a statue donated by the Legion of Mary. Coffin became a popular site of pilgrimages. Therese was canonised, that is, declared a saint, on the 17th of May 1925 by Pope Pius XI, only 28 years after her death, and five years in the day after the canonisation of Joan of Arc, who had inspired the young Therese. See the podcast of April 29th for more information. At the time of Therese's canonisation, Pope Pius XI revived the old custom of covering St. Peter's with torches and tallow lamps. And the New York Times ran a front-page story about the occasion titled All Rome Admires St. Peter's Aglow for a New Saint. According to the Times, over 60,000 people, estimated to be one of the largest crowds inside St. Peter's Basilica, witnessed the canonisation ceremonies. And in the evening, half a million pilgrims pressed into the lit square. She rapidly became one of the most popular saints of the 20th century. And devotion to Therese developed around the world. According to some biographies of Edith Piaf, in 1922, the singer who was at the time an unknown seven-year-old girl was cured from blindness after a pilgrimage to the grave of Therese. Her relics have been on an international pilgrimage since 1994, including to South Africa in conjunction with the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Pope Francis has a great devotion to her, often carrying a story of a soul with him on his travels. And he has said, When I have a problem, I ask the saint not to solve it, but to take it in her hands and to help me accept it. Her two parents, Zélie and Louis Martin, were the first spouses to be proposed for canonisation as a couple, and the first to be canonised together in 2015. That's all from the Pearl of Great Price today. Join us tomorrow if you can, as we look at the life of Adolf von Harnack, the influential German theologian and historian. I hope you've enjoyed listening visit us on www.pogp.net and if you'd like to contact us to request a topic or to ask any question then email the show on pogppod at gmail.com have a lovely day wherever you are and thanks for listening